You're listening to season two, episode four of the Breathe Like a Badass podcast. This week, I'm talking to Adriana Limbach, meditation teacher and author of the new book, Tea and Cake with Demons, a Buddhist guide to feeling worthy. Hello, you are listening to Breathe Like a Badass, the podcast for ambitious, creative women who know that anxious, overwhelmed and full of self-doubt is absolutely no way to live. I'm Hannah and I teach personalized and down-to-earth meditation as a tool to help you overcome anxiety and overwhelm, stop overthinking in its tracks and finally get you the calm, clarity and confidence you need to live your most fulfilled one wild life. This podcast is intended to be your trusty companion as you head outside of your comfort zone. And every week, I speak to badass women and men who are out there taking bold, creative, and concrete steps towards their goals and dreams and living the mindful, contented, and fulfilled life that we really do all truly deserve. This week's podcast is brought to you by my free quiz, which asks the question, what is really keeping you stuck and how can you break free? It is totally free and in return you will get a personalised profile sent directly to your inbox plus a free three-day video course on exactly what you need to break through to a life that feels truly good. Head over to breathelikeabadass.com forward slash quiz to take it now and also if you're listening to this episode on your phone I would absolutely love to know and I'd love to say hi and thank you in person so please do take a screenshot of the episode and post it on Instagram tagging me at breathe like a badass send me a dm or you can always send me an email as well at hannah at breathe like a badass.com you would also make my absolute day slash week slash year if you went to wherever you're listening to this podcast now and leave a review especially on apple Podcasts, because those reviews show up well and they help spread the word to everyone else who could use a little bit of support on their journey because no one deserves to live life anxious, overwhelmed, and feeling not good enough. Believe me, I've been there and I truly do know. That is where this podcast and my brilliant guests come in. Thanks so much for listening and let's get on with this week's show. I am ridiculously excited to say that this week my conversation is with Adriana Limbach, a head teacher at the Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. She's also the author of the brand new book, Tea and Cake with Demons, A Buddhist Guide to Feeling Worthy. Adriana wants you to know that you are whole, complete and basically good, exactly as you are. That leads very neatly into what we actually talked about in the podcast. As you may be able to tell, Adriana's book is about feeling worthy. And I don't know about you, but I have spent so many years of my life basically just never ever feeling good enough. And in the podcast, we talk about why this is such an endemic universal problem and how meditation can help. We also talked about Adriana's own journey from having very public panic attacks in New York City to now becoming a meditation teacher. We also talked about the real realities of what it's like to write a book when you're struggling with writer's block and self-doubt. We also talked about the tensions between learning to feel good enough exactly as you are while also maintaining your drive and ambition to do more and achieve great things in your life. We also talk about how to show up online and is it really possible to use Instagram without comparing yourself and feeling like crap? 
and we also talked about the crucial second stage of meditation that most people sadly miss and that can make their practice feel much more uncomfortable than it needs to be. Honestly, it was a genuine joy to have Adriana on the show. She is absolutely one of the warmest, loveliest and real people that I've ever had the pleasure of talking to. She shows immense compassion, real honesty, and she really tackles some difficult central questions, not only within Buddhism and meditation, but also just within life and how to be a human in today's world. This conversation was an absolute dream because as someone who struggled with self-worth my entire life, it really just made me feel worthy and explained to me why it's okay for all of us to take up space in the world. This is an incredibly useful, practical and genuinely uplifting conversation and I'm super glad to be able to share it with you. As usual, and I do sometimes forget to say this guys so I'm really sorry, but as usual, all these show notes for this podcast can be found at breathelikeabadass.com forward slash podcast. Okay, hi, we're recording. Adriana, thank you so much for being here. It's genuinely an honor to have you on the show. How are you doing? I feel great. I feel great. It's so good to be here with you. Um, I have to tell you, Hannah, I've been looking forward to this conversation all week long. So it's really, it's really great to sit down with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, no, thank you so much. I mean, I don't really know where to start so much. I mean, I obviously have questions for you, but it's just been such an amazing journey towards you being on the show because as, as I was saying to you before I started recording, I know your husband, Lodro Rensler, who, for people that don't know, is an author and uh, was brought up a Buddhist and is now a Buddhist uh, meditation teacher, founder of Mindful Meditation Studios in New York, and you are his partner, his wife. Uh, congratulations on your kind of recent wedding, by the way, and your honeymoon. Um, and that's kind of how I have got to know you. But I would love to know what your journey towards doing this was. Uh, can you just summarize kind of your background in discovering mindfulness and how you came to be teaching mindfulness and meditation at Mindful in New York City and kind of what your story is? Yeah, absolutely. I um, First of all, thank you. Thank you for the congrats on our, our recent wedding. We just celebrated a year. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's funny to think about the progression towards um, teaching meditation and teaching mindfulness and, and writing this book on meditation and Buddhism, um, because in retrospect, it seems like all of the dots sort of organically connect. Like it's such a it's such a fluid, linear story in retrospect. But uh, moving through it, it, it always just kind of felt like this kind of like messy, chaotic process of stumbling forward. Um, so the the kind of like clean, linear version in retrospect. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, here in the United States, uh, from the Midwest, and I come from a, a, a very small town that had the biggest high school in the state. Um, so because it was a, a small town with the biggest high school, they didn't actually have, um, 
the high school curriculum set up the way that most curriculum is. They set it up like a college curriculum where you had to say, take a history class your junior year, but you could choose between Polish American history, African American history, Native American history. Um, and there was one class on the history roster called a history of great ideas. And I, only knew this class because it was the one class that um, one of the teachers at the school, Mr. Siebert, taught. And I really liked him. I didn't know him, but I just kind of gravitated towards him naturally. He was such a grumpy weirdo. He would always kind of like, he was such like a curmudgeonly grumpy, um, but like funny, joyful human being. And, and I thought, okay, I want to take a class with him. He teaches this class called the history of great ideas. Um, I show up my junior year and it just happens to be a class on, um, Eastern philosophy. So we studied a lot of Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Jainism, really kind of doing a, a cross compare of these different Eastern philosophies. And when we were covering Buddhism, um, we went right into the Heart Sutra, which completely blew my mind. Um, I mean, in retrospect, it's like such a it's like such a dense teaching to be like, okay, we're going to be talking about Buddhism. Let's let's like unpack this like incredibly dense text together. Um, but the gist of the Heart Sutra, for those of us who are listening, um, is that it, it it breaks down that we don't necessarily exist inherently from our own side of things like we don't we don't exist in the world the way that we think that we do um, so it's a lot of the teachings on emptiness um, and I, it terrified me it was like wait what like what like what do you mean I'm the prom queen like I spend so much time working on the way that I exist in the world and I spend so much of my effort and um, a lot of my energy and my thoughts go towards kind of just like really trying to solidify my identity in the world like like what like what does this even mean um and it was terrifying and compelling enough to me that i decided that i wanted to learn more um so i started meditating started studying buddhism just kind of on my own time uh fast forward a few years i moved to new york city start partying, living in New York City at 20 years old, completely fall off of meditation, completely fall off of my studies, um, find myself at 25 years old with um, this, this kind of uh, study track of costume design, which is something that I know that I don't necessarily want to pursue as a career, um, owing a lot of money in student debt and having very public panic attacks, like very public breakdowns. Um, kind of like quarter life crisis style feeling like, okay, I live in the most expensive city in the world. I have no idea what I want to do with my life. I feel like I'm not where I should be at this point. Um, like, like what am I doing? And my roommate at the time had been studying Buddhism and, and taking meditation classes at an organization called the interdependence project here in New York city. Uh, and she was like, Hey, how about you come to class with me? That meditation thing might actually be really helpful for you right now. Um, so yeah, that's how I found myself, I would say 12 years ago at this point, um, sort of recommitting to my, to my practice and to my studies and yeah, finding, finding my way back to the cushion in a much more kind of sustainable way. That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, I find it, 
really fascinating how you actually accepted your roommate's suggestion Mm. because I feel like so much of the time I mean I guess it could go either way because for example I know that the biggest responses that I get when people talk to me about meditation and their own practice is well I tried it and it didn't work for me or I'm not the kind of person who meditates or they say I only need meditation when I'm super stressed I'm not stressed enough or my life's not bad enough or <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that stuff you know it's it's not for me that's not going to help I need to take action. I need to, I need to find a solution to my stress and, you know, I need to make money and get strategies and, and all these things. And it's like, how is, how is meditation going to help me? I am furthest away from calm. I am furthest away from knowing what's going on in my life than I've ever been. How can you possibly think that sitting down on a cushion is going to help me? So I think, I'd love to know what your response to that is because it's so common, but also I, I think it's awesome that at a point in your life where you weren't perhaps meditating and you weren't receptive to the principles of meditation that you, that you did, that you listened to your roommate, you were like, Oh, Oh yeah, maybe it, maybe it would work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know, I think I, I already had some buy-in um, because I had such early exposure to it uh, and remembered like, oh yeah, that did actually make me feel really sort of um, engaged and, and clear and uh, connected and like a little bit more sane. Uh, and if there's anything that I want in the middle of my of like nervous breakdown quarter life crisis it's a little bit of clarity and sanity so like right oh yeah that was helpful let me let me return to that um which you know i think you bring up a really great point which is that um for folks who don't necessarily already have that buy-in they haven't already kind of had that taste and had that experience to return back to in, in times of trouble and in times of stress um it, it can be it can be a really um, great question. Like, why would I need meditation right now? Like, this doesn't make any sense. I need to like find an action plan and like jump into action and jump into strategy. I'm not gonna sit in silence for 30 minutes. Like, that's a waste of time. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think also people think that, you know, the last thing they need is to kind of be adding more to their plate you know oh you're telling me that it's going to take me a long time to learn how to meditate or you're telling me that it's a practice I need to do every day well I'm already super stressed I already don't have enough time how is that going to help yeah 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 and it's just as well I think it's something that Dan Harris says the uh the author of 10% happier he says that it's also about kind of understanding that it is a practice that is going to actually help you in times when you feel like you need it the most. But, but for example, he uses the example of um, if you're running for a bus, mm. it's probably going to be easier for you to run for the bus if you already have an existing practice of going for a jog every, mm. every few days. You know, So it's like when you're super stressed and you need the skill the most, it's going to be much easier for you to fall back on it 
if you've already got the practice in place at a time when maybe you feel like you don't need it, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and I love that distinction. I love that you made that distinction. Um, what a great analogy of, of running for the bus is easier if you go for a morning jog every day. Like it, it won't feel so, you won't be so winded by it. It won't feel so foreign. Yeah, um, I, I do love that example. It kind of explains it a bit. Just the idea of actually, you know, maybe you don't feel like you need it, but hey, give it a try. It might actually help you in future if you if you encounter periods of even more stress and even more anxiety. Yeah. But I feel like we're jumping ahead slightly because, you know, I know that you know that you you agree with mindfulness and I don't need to tell you, of course. So <laughs> I feel like we're jumping ahead because the reason why I wanted to speak to you specifically at, at this point in time is because obviously the huge news is that you've just released your book, yeah. Tea and Cake with Demons, which is just just got to be one of the best titles of of books about buddhism that i've ever i've ever seen so congratulations on your book thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you yeah it's um it's really exciting to come to a completion phase of of something that has taken so long i mean there were so many periods in writing this book it took me about two years to finish it um where i would just be like <laughs> curled up on the floor, sobbing writer's block under deadline of like, I'm not going to finish this. This book is never going to be done. I'm never going to get this finished. I should just like write to my publisher right now and let myself off the hook a little bit. Just be gracious towards myself. I'm not going to finish this book. Um, so the fact that we're sitting here today together celebrating that it is out in the world and you read it and people are reading it and it no longer just exists as this like ongoing concept in my head is so magical like it really feels like it feels it feels like i understand the concept of manifestation for the first time of like oh this was purely just like a it was like a question i was asking myself over and over and over again and it came to fruition in like this, this like 200 page book that other people are now picking up and having conversations about like, whoa, that is magic to turn a question into something tangible that people are connecting to. Um, yeah, so thank you. That's a really long way of me saying thank you. No, but it makes so much sense. And I, I and a question that I have for you is part, is, is about part of that writing process but yeah I mean I've got I've got it on Kindle because um, I only have access to the uh, UK Amazon store uh, I've also available at all other booksellers and online retailers of course but I used Amazon uh, just to grab the Kindle version um, and it's so funny to hear you saying that about how you felt like you know it was never going to happen and it's taken you two years to write because it doesn't feel like that at all when you read it it feels so natural it, it feels so human your stories are so relatable and that's kind of one of the reasons why I connected with your work so much and why when Lodro recommended that you know me and you talk together it was for that exact reason because it is such an honest and open book mm -hmm. um thank you yeah and and I wanted to ask kind of 
I related so much. I think in the beginning you said that the book had involved, like you say, a lot of time on the floor, crying, eating cheese and wondering, you know, if you were ever going to get it finished. And I think pretty much everyone that listens to this podcast you know, whatever creative endeavor they have in their life, you know, maybe it is that they want to write their own book. It's so refreshing to hear somebody say, you know, it was difficult. Like it was tough. It's taken me a long time. I didn't just like do it in a week, you know, it wasn't an overnight success. And I just can relate to that so much. I just wanted to thank you for being so honest about that process, because I think the more that people are honest and say, you know, I had this project in my head for a long time and, you know, yes, now it's all great, but it wasn't always. I think it's super important to be that honest about that creative process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally feel, and this is just my opinion, I feel like we're all so hung up on making everything effortless and making everything in our life like simple and effortless and easy. And, you know, sometimes it's just not, sometimes it's not effortless and that's okay. That's okay. Because I I think, you know, if, and I'll just speak from my own side of things, if I had walked into this process with the expectation that it should be like effortless and flow and full of grace and ease, um, I would have completely dropped this project the moment that things got hard and the moment that things got tough and the moment that I really had to like roll up my sleeves and be like, okay, I'm getting in there. Um, because, you know, and I, 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 I do believe in some respect, um, we kind of get, um, there's this, there's this lovely phrase that, uh, Jetson Tenzin Palmo, who, uh, is English monastic, uh, Tibetan nun uses, which is, um, going spiritually flabby, um, which like spiritual flabbiness develops from like never actually doing the tough stuff, like really only relying on our spiritual practice to like make us feel really good. And, um, you know, kind of like bring that sense of like ease and flow and which, you know, when those moments happen are so great. But I think that also like the moments of crying on the floor, eating cheese, questioning what on earth we have done um, and, and like doing the hard stuff really actually has a lot of value as well, um, both in our life as human beings, but also in our spiritual practice. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and that just kind of lights up my brain with a bunch of other questions that I've got later for you about kind of, you know, the difference between being in flow and doing the difficult stuff and, and exactly what your what the title of your book suggests making friends with your demons like inviting them in accepting them and you know not letting them stop you it's a very simplistic way of summarizing what your amazing book is about <laughs> but that was kind of why I love the title as well because it just so so obviously sort of said to me yeah it's about this story of like meeting the difficult moments and recognizing them and not running away from them or yeah, trying to escape them, which is part of what your book so fantastically explains. I would love to know what the catalyst was for you actually writing the book at the moment. I mean, you said it's taken you two years, but what was it that kind of made you think like, I need to write this book now. Like, this is a question that I have now. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great question. Um, so again, I think in retrospect, it's like all of the dots connect so neatly of like, oh yes, of course, this was just my path and it feels very linear. But again, like the whole time it felt just kind of like 
stumbling chaotically into the unknown. Um, so it, like the clean sort of retrospect um, was probably, gosh, you know, I've, I've probably been thinking about this question of self-worth um, and why it is that I, I personally don't ever feel quite enough um, for a good, like ever, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, like probably my entire life. <laughs> I think I think it's always it's always been a question of, you know, what what is enough? What is enough in my life? What's that kind of sweet spot between um, like ease and ambition or kind of like, you know, pushing into the world and making things happening and and being more kind of like soft and receptive and allowing things to come to me? Like what like what's enough in that respect and, and what's enough materially? Like do I do I have enough? Do I have enough? Um, sort of like things and money and the sort of security that comes from that and also like am I enough am I good enough smart enough thin enough pretty enough bright enough clever enough you know like all of the different kind of ways in which we use different currency in the world to like feel like we're good enough um, so yeah I mean I think long answer I've been asking this question forever short answer which is probably also going to be a long answer. I apologize. <laughs> I apologize. I mean, if I could pick my laptop up and up and kind of bring it closer towards me right now, I would because <laughs> everything that you are saying is just speaking directly to my soul. And if it's speaking to my soul, I know that it will to like hundreds of thousands of millions of other people as well. Because this this thing about not to interrupt you, but just to say what you're saying about enoughness and and feeling like the question of being enough and having enough and doing enough and having that question forever, as long as you can remember, yeah. like you might as well be telling my own story. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, I think that you, you touched on a really salient point in terms of how this book got made is that um, I know that you are a coach and I, I can't wait to talk about that. I can't wait to connect on that level. Um, I am also a coach. I've been coaching for about the past 10 years or so. Um, and for the past 10 years, I've been, I've been coaching with an organization that trains other coaches. Um, it's one of the largest uh, coaching training institutes in the world. Uh, and they're in many different countries. And for the past 10 years, I've been hosting these group coaching classes within this program where uh, there's about eight people, mostly women, not to gender generalize, but it is mostly women in these groups. Um, and we come together from just such a broad cross-section of the world, like all different ages, all different beliefs and backgrounds and socioeconomic status and um, religions and philosophies, like it couldn't be any more diverse, really. Um, and something that I noticed for years in these coaching circles is that regardless of where these women, sometimes men, but mostly women were from in the world, um, something that almost always came up consistently is feeling of not being enough and it came up in you know lots of different ways they would use lots of different language to describe this feeling of like not 
knowing enough or not feeling prepared enough or not feeling um, like they had enough resources or enough education or, you know, not just kind of like this, this overwhelming sense of not enoughness, both in their exterior life, but that also felt really kind of like internalized into this question of who do I think I am? Like, who do I think I am? And the more that I would see this, I mean, again, this is over the course of 10 years where I was like, wait, okay, so A, I'm not the only one who feels this way. Like this is systemic. This is across the globe. And B, why aren't we talking about this? Because we all seem to think it, it, it's just us. And that's a part of it. That's part of the trap. Um, I mean, Brene Brown is kind of, you know, the queen of talking about how shame breeds in isolation. And I found that this was one of these kind of like shame conversations that were being had over and over and over again by all of these different people. And I would, I would tilt my camera um, if it weren't such a weird angle, but I have, I have like a hundred different notebooks in my office right now of just like stories upon stories upon stories upon stories of women in their own words, talking about that feeling of not being quite enough. And so I think the the kind of initial question for me was like, all right, you know, if there's if there's one fish that washes ashore, the biologist would look at it and say, oh, look, it's a dead fish. But if hundreds of thousands of fish start washing up from the ocean onto the shore, the biologist at some point would test the water. Like what's in the water that is causing all of these fish to wash up on the shore? And, and for me, it, it really kind of felt that way with the question of enoughness. Like why don't any of us feel like we're quite good enough? Um, and so that, that was really kind of like the seedling for this book. That's so incredible. And it's definitely so true, this idea. And I think that one of the reasons why it's so pervasive as well is because, you know, nowadays there's so much on self-care and being kind to yourself and you are enough and all you have to do is believe in yourself and it doesn't matter what you look like it's about what you feel and you know the body positivity movement and I am not denigrating any of those things they are all absolutely fantastic and wonderful but something that has come up for me a lot in my coaching and also even with my conversations with Lodra as well and reading your book as well what comes up a lot for me is this idea that we each of us thinks that we are uniquely the worst (laughs) like we are somehow immune from the stuff that works for other people and this is something that's happened that's, that's come up for me so much because it's like there's so many people out there telling you that all you have to do is believe in yourself and if you really believe in yourself you can do anything and all it is is just it's just about confidence and it's just about you know being comfortable in your own skin and and you are good enough and all you have to do is believe it and it's like yeah that's great but it's like you know people don't like uh inspirational slogans because it's like yeah but unless you unless it actually connects with you on an actual kind of like deep level unless you truly start to believe in your own sense of confidence you can read a million self-help books you can look at a million inspirational quotes you can listen to your partner, your parents or whatever, tell you that you are good enough. All you have to do is believe in yourself a million times and it's not actually going to work because we, each of us believes that we are kind of the one that is, you know, our problems are uniquely worse or, you know, for me, it's kind of the opposite for me. It's kind of like, 
I've had such an incredibly privileged life in so many ways. And yet I still don't have my shit together. Like, you know, how, how dare I, you know, there's all these people complaining about like systemic poverty and the fact that they don't have opportunities. And if they could only be given the opportunities, then they would believe in themselves. And Mm -hmm. that is completely true. And I do not for one second doubt that. But what happens if you're like me and you feel like you have had a shit ton of opportunities and you still don't believe in yourself. And that's why I kind of connected with what you said earlier, that this cuts across so many divides, you know, different socioeconomic status, different backgrounds, different religions. And that's why I find your work so fascinating because it kind of understands that point. You're not just writing a self-help book that says, all you got to do is believe in yourself and it'll all be okay. It's like, Mm. no, you're actually cutting to the heart of where this feeling actually comes from and using Buddhism to help explain that this feeling is actually super universal. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it it struck me as you were talking about... um, you know, coming from a lot of good fortune, coming from a lot of privilege and, and that feeling of like, well, I should definitely have my shit together then. Um, that everything can be used as a weapon. Like we can weaponize anything against ourselves, including our own good fortune. <laughs> like, Isn't that, that crazy? It's crazy. It's crazy. And it is so universal. It's so universal. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think as I started studying Buddhism, something that I found to be really refreshing is that there was kind of this similar baseline as you're talking about understanding of we are enough. We are good enough just as we are. Um, we are absolutely perfect. We are complete. We're definitely not finished, but we are complete. Um, and we have everything that we need. We have basic goodness. We have Buddha nature. Every single one of us, there's a, there might be like a lot of clutter and a lot of confusion piled on top of it, but our baseline is basically whole, complete, and good. Um, and really liking that idea and really liking that concept, but experientially, my experience did not match up with that concept. I was like, I really like the idea of this. And it is kind of like the self-help books that are like, just be confident. You're like, yes, I love that idea. And also the truth in my experience is not that. So how do I reconcile the two? Um, And I found that that for myself, and this is a big part of of the book and the title of the book came from, um, is that the moment that I started to sort of take on this working hypothesis of being complete, whole, and basically good is the moment that every single neurotic aspect of myself that conceals my basic goodness came right to the forefront, where it was like, sure, take this on as a working hypothesis. And also that means that you're going to encounter all of the evidence to the contrary. (laughs) Like you're going to encounter that inner voice that is constantly chattering in the back of your head that is pointing out every single one of your flaws and making you like rethink and replay conversations and like analyzing things down to a pulp and like exhaust, like all of that exhaustion um yeah yeah I think that's for me that's kind of where the power of learning the mindfulness and the meditation comes in because I feel like I can't remember who said it I I never know who said this but and it's something that I say as well and who knows maybe I've just taken the phrase and kind of 
made it my own. Who knows? I don't know. But it's this idea that without self-compassion, learning about Buddhism and learning about mindfulness and meditation is actually just heightening the anxiety on its own. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you teach someone to be hyper aware, which is effectively what mindfulness is, you teach someone to be hyper aware and you don't teach them compassion and you don't teach them to accept their basic goodness. It's probably going to get worse before it gets better because they're going to be so aware of all the ways in which they don't match up. Yeah. This basic goodness part is so important, but I feel like it so often gets forgotten because everyone's so concerned with, well, how can I be super aware? And it's like, yeah, but awareness without compassion is just like heightened anxiety. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I know for myself, that was definitely my experience when I first started meditating. I was like, oh, same. I'm so neurotic. Like there is a crazy person that lives in my head that's giving me a play by play and overthinking everything. Oh my gosh, what do I do with this information? <laughs> exactly. And I think so many people resist meditation because they're like, I already know that I'm not good enough. I don't want to become more aware of it. Like, why are you telling me to focus on my thoughts? Like, I, I don't want to, like, I don't want to be in there. I want to mm -hmm. escape. And it's what you say about distraction. You know, we find so many ways of distracting ourselves. Yeah. And actually, I feel like this compassion piece and this, like, what you talk about kind of meeting your demons rather than, rather than firstly, you know, just ignoring them and just continuing to distract ourselves, which is kind of like, what I would call sort of step one <laughs> and then like step <laughs> two is like meditation and mindfulness and being aware of them like okay cool like I have all these demons but I feel like step three like I said is is actually the self-worth that you talk about mm. so much it's not just accepting our demons it's not just noticing that our demons are there it's then being able to move forward into what that means for us and how we can work with the demons rather than you know just accept them and like okay cool this is just how my brain is like it sucks it's like no <laughs> that's not the whole story I yeah love it. yeah so yeah I mean the phrase that you used that particularly hit me in your book was restless everything mm. the mm -hmm. idea that even when nothing is really wrong we we still find things that are not right <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah that really struck me I, I wanted to also talk about something that you said as well in that in our society, we often see things as very binary, like good, mm -hmm. bad, like, dislike, stressed, calm, <laughs> pass, fail, good enough, not good enough. And I would love to ask you how Buddhism and mindfulness and meditation help us to kind of sit in the middle ground between what can sometimes feel very binary? Mm, yeah. I think for me, at least one of the sort of um, encouraged attitudes or encouraged qualities that we bring to our meditation practice is one of curiosity, um, of really approaching the meditation cushion. Every time we sit down, 
and, and maybe just noticing if we've already kind of made up our mind about what this experience is going to be or what this experience should be in order to constitute a, a good experience. The, um, the experience of the meditation practice. The experience of the meditation practice. When we yeah. sit down, we think, oh, well, I need to feel like this. And if I don't, then I'm, I'm wrong. I failed. Right. Or it's, it was a bad, it was a bad practice. Like it's a good practice is if, if I feel this way and this is what I'm aiming for, it's a bad practice. If it feels this way, this is what I'm trying to avoid. Um, which, you know, even in our meditation practice, we can sit on the cushion with that binary thinking in mind of like, if I have this experience, it's a bad practice. If I have this experience, it's a good practice. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make it a good practice and not have a bad practice. Um, and one of the really encouraged attitudes of meditation is to sit down and to notice if we're, if we've already made up our mind about what this this experience is going to be or what it should be and to see if we can check some of those expectations at the door so that our meditation practice actually has an opportunity to surprise us that there's no good and bad practice it's really just an opportunity to meet our minds and meet our interior life and just notice notice what feels really sort of alive and present um, for us today without without making it mean anything without assigning it any sort of meaning, noticing when we kind of travel down the rabbit hole of telling ourselves stories about it, and just come back to the breath because all we're doing here is we're just bearing witness to our experience. And I think that that practice day in and day out really helps us to kind of um, soften that, that binary thinking of, of really sort of qualifying everything as good or bad or pass or fail or yes or no um, without taking the time to get curious about it and explore like wait does this actually feel painful like yes my foot is asleep in my mind i'm saying ow my foot but is it like is this actually painful like let me just spend some time with my foot right now like huh okay no it's you know it's it's not necessarily painful it's maybe like a little uncomfortable this is where I feel some pins and needles like, oh, okay, this is like traveling to the arch of my foot. There's a warm sensation here. Maybe it feels like a little bit intense around the ankle. And it starts to, it starts to open up this much more kind of nuanced experience of what we would just slap a label on and say, this is bad, this hurts. But like, okay, but what happens if I spend some time with it? It's probably a lot more textured and more nuanced and more sort of interesting and rich if I just take some time to um, unpack it a little bit and spend time with it. Absolutely. And would you mind expanding a bit on that point, referring to what we were talking about earlier and what your book massively talks about, which is the feelings that we're not doing enough and we're not enough and we're running out of time and we haven't achieved what we thought we would achieve at this point in our life, which is mm -hmm. such a ubiquitous thing. You know, and it's something that I think about all the time. And it's like, it doesn't matter how many times you tell yourself, you know, on bad days, you're like, well, I should have done this. And I should have achieved this. And why haven't I done this by now? And I'm not enough. And I never will be. And how can your experience of, of meditation help you to meet those thoughts in a more productive way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's the curiosity piece. 
Um, I wonder if you've noticed this in your own practice as well. For me, it's, it's definitely the curiosity piece of um, when we're sitting down on the meditation cushion every single day, say for 10 or 15 minutes, um, and we're practicing this non-judgment, this kind of non-binary curiosity about our experience, um, we don't have to try to translate that onto our lives. It just does. <laughs> we start to, there's this phrase that's oftentimes used as like, um, the mind of meditation. We bring the mind of meditation to everything else that we are experiencing in our world. And, and for me, it's the curiosity piece of like noticing the moment that I'm immediately going to slap a label on it based on my own expectations of, you know, what it should be or what constitutes a good or productive experience. And instead taking that moment to pause and say, okay, cool. I noticed that I'm about to qualify this experience is it really that way? Like what, like what's, what's the nuance here? Um, and for me, again, going back to this word effortless, for me, that begins to feel more effortless because it's so deeply practiced on the meditation cushion um, that I, I, I notice, you know, it, it translates very easily onto everything else in life of like getting to the end of the day and feeling like, oh, I didn't get enough done. Like, is that true? Let me explore this a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I kind of love that. And I, I think that's such a fantastic way of explaining how your 10 or 15 minute meditation practice can actually be useful in the rest of your life. Because I think that's something that people struggle with a huge amount as well. They're like, great, well, I've done this meditation practice. And then I go into the rest of my life. And it's like, I'm still stressed. I'm still angry. I still feel lack of confidence how do I translate this from my cushion into my life and it's like that's what we're training a curiosity a more nuanced view of the things that our brain tells us about ourselves. yeah 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 absolutely absolutely and I mean I I, I frequently joke that uh, meditation is like the horse of many colors from the Wizard of Oz, where you might come to the cushion because you're like, oh, I want a green horse. Like, I want to feel less stressed. I'm not sleeping well. My job is a hassle. My kids are completely wild right now. Like, I'm so stressed out, and I heard that this could help. Um, but what we find the moment that we commit to meditation practice is that even though we were in the market for a green horse, it's also a red horse and an orange horse and a pink horse. And there are all of these kind of auxiliary benefits that develop around our initial motivation or our initial intention for practice that we could have never anticipated. Um, and it, it is kind of wonderful. And I'm going to use that word again. It's a little magical to notice it starting to impact all of the little nooks and crannies of our life in the places we couldn't have anticipated. Yeah. I mean, what I think as well is, is super interesting and it made me think when you were talking um i was reading an article by uh sharon salzberg who is basically a proponent of, of loving kindness meditation as a whole other podcast but basically she's a fantastic <laughs> fantastic meditation teacher um and she talked about in this article about how she was practicing loving kindness and she was feeling nothing in her words she said i was feeling nothing I was doing this practice. I was sitting down every single day, practicing all day, every day for a week. And I felt like it wasn't working and there was no point to it. And it was only later when she, depending on the story that you hear, she dropped a glass jar on the floor or she dropped, she dropped a mug on the floor and it smashed. 
And rather than telling herself that she was useless and terrible and can't believe that I just did that, what a stupid thing to do. She realized that she was being compassionate to herself and saying, oh, there you go again. You're so silly, but I love you. Mm. And it was like her brain had changed without her even realizing. And it's like you say, it's kind of magical because it is retraining the however you want to call it the the pathways in our brain and before we realize it you know we think it's not doing anything and actually it's such a gradual process of retraining the way that we see ourselves and the way that we talk to ourselves yeah yeah i mean i think you bring up a really great point which is there's a lot that one could say about meditation and it is a lot of things but it was initially developed as a form of mind training. We're training our minds in the same way that we would train our bodies, um, which if, if this is running the show 24-7, if like the space between my cute little earlobes is, is running, is driving the ship and running the show, um, I don't know. Again, this is just personal opinion, but I feel like it is so worth having a working understanding of, of what's actually going on up there and how it's shaping my world and and taking some time to actively train it yeah but you know so often don't get taught how to do that yeah preaching to the choir (laughs) i know i know and and i do sometimes think with this podcast that i you know sometimes it, it does feel like oh i've sorted everything out and that was another podcast where i've put the world to rights and well done me aren't we just so open and brilliant now But it's, it's because it is a practice and it's because it doesn't happen overnight and it's because it's something that we have to keep on reminding ourselves and that's kind of part of it, this need to kind of consistently remind ourselves like it's a practice and it won't come overnight and it's about training ourselves bit by bit every day and if you still struggle with anxiety and stress and self-doubt, you probably still will, but it's about how you react to it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something as well to go back to your book that I felt your book really explains so brilliantly that even though you are somebody that has huge amounts of experience in this and you teach people how to meditate and you run your own classes, it's not a magic pill. You still suffer from it. And I wanted to ask you about that because Firstly, amazing. Like, thank you for being so honest. Secondly, to play devil's advocate slightly, if this practice doesn't cure our anxiety and if, it, if we still suffer from these things, even though we've been doing it for years, why should anyone else bother? Mm, yeah, this is the best question. This is the best question. Like, why? Okay, if you, ha- if you don't have it figured out, <laughs> if you're still an anxious person, like, why bother? Why bother doing the thing? Um, yeah, it's a really great question. So first of all, um, yes, and I am very clear in the book that I am incredibly anxious. Um, I'm probably one of the most judgmental human beings that I know. Um, I am very quick to anger. Like anger is one of my favorite emotions because it just feels so powerful like especially righteous indignation where I'm like mm, it's like my anger is coupled up with my judgment and now I can just like turn into this like really kind of like sanctimonious beast that feels so powerful in the world um so like 
all of that is still there in spades because meditation practice doesn't make us different. It makes us more of who we are. It brings us into contact with who we are. Um, this is like a little bit of a side note, but I, I feel like this is my new favorite analogy. Um, Lodra and I recently went down to New Orleans and we met with a voodoo priest. And um, the voodoo priest who gave us our, our reading said, you know, you have a lot of spirits in your house. You have a lot of like dead energy in your house. And I was like, hmm, okay. So should I go home and burn sage or something? And he said, no, 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 no. The thing about sage that people misunderstand is that it doesn't clear the air. It just clarifies whatever is there. It just clarifies whatever is already there. So you're going to have a more kind of pure, distilled, potent clarification of, of what already exists. It doesn't move anything out. I feel like the exact same is true for meditation, where we, we come in and there might be this expectation of like, okay, it's going to like get rid of all of my bad thoughts, but it's just going to clarify them. It's just going to bring them right to the surface. So I think what you're bringing up, like why bother? Because I don't want to deal with that. <laughs> why bother? Um, is that um, it gives us an opportunity um, to, to use your word. It gives us an opportunity to, to relate to a different um, so that we're not kind of going to all of our like quick fix strategies. Um, when we do notice like our righteous judgmental anger come to the forefront, instead of letting that take the wheel and drive us down the road, there can be a moment of choice. And I think this is one of the really kind of powerful auxiliary benefits of meditation is that we just develop more choice. Like, is, is this how I'm going to participate in the world? Am I going to, am I going to let my righteous judgmental anger lead the way in this situation? Or am I going to notice it and say, okay, hello, I see you. Thank you for the information. <laughs> that's not what we're doing right now. Yeah. That's not how I want to be. That's not how I want to be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I even kind of resist my own, my own phrasing there because it's kind of like, and you do talk about it in the book as well, the way that the English language makes us identify with our current, possibly fleeting temporary states. Mm -hmm. like, I am angry. And the example that you use in the book is I am with anger. Mm -hmm. I think it was Portuguese that you said, mm -hmm. you know, Portuguese uses I am with anger. I speak fluent French and they don't quite have the same thing, but they say I am in anger. Like I am sweet mm. encore. And it, it kind of is that level of separation that actually I was taught when I was uh, training in MBCT that you can look at your emotions from a third party perspective. You're not in mm. them, they are just here. Mm -hmm. Like your anger is just here, but you don't have to necessarily pay it any attention. Yeah. That for me was super powerful. Yeah. I did want to ask you as well how to square being happier with yourself and feeling like you are good enough and noticing your thoughts and just being present with them. How do you square that with wanting to do things and being ambitious and getting mm -hmm. stuff done? Because, you know, if I'm good enough as I am and I don't need to worry about all these external markers of success or whatever, then why, why work for anything? Yeah. Where does ambition fit into this? 
No, this is a really great question. This is such a great question. Um, oh my gosh, there's so much that I want to say about it. <laughs> go ahead, um, go ahead. There's so much that I want to say about it. Okay, so um, I remember so clearly growing up, my mom, when I was about five years old or six years old, my mom saying, you can't fuck up, Adriana. You can't fuck up. Like, no matter what you do in this world, you can't fuck up. Like, I would prefer if you didn't go to prison or become addicted to heroin because that would break my heart. But, like, no matter what you do, everything is okay. You can't fuck up. And I remember even at such a young age, and I recently talked to my mom about this, I remember at such a young age being so angry about that statement. I was like, really? That's where you're going to set the bar for me? Like, that's it. Like, that's, that's where my bar is. It's like, please don't go to prison or become a heroin addict. Other than that, you can't fuck up. Like, where's the drive? Like, where is the standard that you're holding me to, to, to be someone in the world or to achieve something? Like, are you kidding me? Um, and I was recently talking to my mama about this and laughing. And I said, you know, thank you so much for having that talk with me because I feel like that made me a very ambitious person. It made me want to like achieve a lot because you set the bar so low for us. And she laughed and she was like, oh no, you are already an ambitious person. And that's why that comment upset you so much. And I was like, oh, touche, touche, mama, touche. So I think this is a question that I am always asking. I mean, it's one of these perennial questions of like, if I am okay as I am, if I'm completely enough and whole and complete and worthy and um, have inherent dignity, like why, why would I go through the effort of trying to achieve anything? Um, and I think what I've discovered from, from my own side of things is that it feels so much more playful when my sense of identity isn't pinned to accomplishment. Because then it's a little bit more like, ooh, okay, I know that I'm, I'm okay as I am, but there are also these um, sort of realms that I want to play in and these realms that I want to participate in in my life. There are things that I want to make and things that I want to create. And it, it feels like when I am, and this isn't always just to make the, make the delineation here, when I am in a place of feeling my inherent worth, I'm able to really manifest in the world as a very ambitious person without the added pressure of pass-fail, without feeling like the outcome is gonna mean something about me. And, and that's fun, that's really fun. That's kind of honoring the fact like, okay, this is an inherent part of my personality. I'm not going to get rid of it. There's no use in shaming it. I love to like make things happen. It feels really good. It gives me a sense of like power and purpose in the world, but can I do it in a really playful way that doesn't pin the outcome to my sense of self-worth? Absolutely. That's such an incredibly eloquent way of describing it. And it really reminds me of what you said earlier as well, that this idea of your worth is, is okay as it is. And actually, all that mindfulness does, all that this philosophy does, is make you more you. Mm -hmm. So if you have a need for ambition, or you want to achieve things in your life, or you have things on your bucket list that you want to do, 
mindfulness is not going to take them away. It's going to make them more clear. It's going to, like you said about the sage, it's going to show them up with more clarity. So actually you'll probably have more drive to, towards achieving those things firstly, because you can see them more clearly. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it doesn't mean that achievements are bad. It doesn't mean that wanting to be successful, make a lot of money, write lots of books, travel the world, have lots of children, get married, whatever it might be. It doesn't mean that achieving outside markers of validation is bad. It just means that you're not, like you say, pinning so much of your self-worth on it. And the way that I like to see it is I'm fine as I am anyway. And anything that I achieve will just be a really great bonus. Mm, mm-hmm. so yeah. We want bonuses in our life. You know, that's not a bad thing. We can, why not go for a bonus? Like right. great, all power to you. But it doesn't mean that you are nothing if you don't get it because it was only a bonus anyway. It was only extra anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm reminded so clearly of something that one of my teachers, Venerable Rubina Curtin, who I mentioned quite a bit in the book, um, she was asked this question at a talk, gosh, maybe back in 2012, um, 2011. And her response was, know what you want. Like get really clear and specific about what you want and go after it. Go after it with all your might. Also, the practice begins the moment that you don't get it. <laughs> oh, if that doesn't get hard into your, into your soul, then I don't know what does. Or the moment that you do get it and you find out that it doesn't actually make you as happy as you thought it would. Um, because I, I, I might be completely alone on this. I wonder if you feel the same. When my sense of identity and my sense of self-worth is pinned to my accomplishment, if and when I do achieve it, it never makes me as happy and fulfilled as I thought that it would. In many cases, it just makes me feel more kind of like stressed out and like weirdly resentful of like, oh my gosh, now I have all of this extra responsibility. Like, I don't like, I don't want to like, who's making me do this? And it's like, no, no one's making you do this. This is exactly what you wanted. You just thought you would feel differently when you got it. You thought that you would feel more like, worthy and impressive and um like available for for love and that wasn't the case (laughs) well if you achieve things it can sometimes be like an extra stick that you used to beat yourself with like look you've achieved this thing why Mm -hmm. are you why are you not happy still (laughs) right yeah again everything can be used as a weapon everything everything yeah everything and so i i think um for me, particularly as a like, motivated, ambitious person, always keeping my finger on the pulse of like, what's my intention here? Like, why? Why do I want to make this thing happen? Does it feel fun and creative? And like, I'm, I'm playing with the kind of like energy of being able to, to like make my ideas come to life. Um, or is it because I want to be seen a certain way? Absolutely. Yeah. Because that, that. It, it, it's a very different intention. It's a very different tone. And I know when I slip into those places and I definitely do of like, I want to achieve X, Y, Z because then everyone will think that I'm great. Then it's definitely a moment for me to like step back a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Or even just like, 
I want to achieve X, Y, Z because I, because then I will prove to this person or prove to myself, prove to the world, you know, they will finally think that I am this. Totally. Absolutely. Something that I wanted to ask you, and again, this is me playing devil's advocate slightly, but in your book, something that really hit me was the story when you described watching uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Mm -hmm. the movie, of, of course, the wonderful book by Roald Dahl, which I love. So I love that book. So mm. as soon as you mentioned that in your book, I was like, oh, I'm paying attention. Yep. <laughs> and then you said, oh, I didn't identify with the good character, though. I didn't identify with, with Charlie. I identified with Veruca, the spoiled brat, the one that we're all supposed to think is terrible. Mm-hmm. And it was then that you realized, actually, it is good to want things, like we've just said. It is fine to want things. It is fine to want to take up space and demand like, this is what I want for my life. Because I think that there's a danger, especially, and you do mention this in your book as well, as women, that we sometimes feel like we have to apologize for wanting to take up space. And we have to apologize for, you know, not being happy with our lot. And this is something that I get told all the time. Oh, just lower your expectations, Hannah. Like, you know, or people say to me, kind of half jokingly but you know or they say um well you know like don't be so demanding or Mm. why would you expect that for your life or isn't what you have already enough and this is all a very long way of me saying in the book you talk about the difference between self-worth and ambition and wanting things justifiably wanting things Mm. and what you call entitlement Mm. and what you call being spoiled and what you call uh you know like you say veruca salt being demanding being being a spoiled brat i would love to know more about what you mean by that this distinction between self-worth and entitlement mm-hmm. yeah gosh yeah i mean this is like if i'm being completely transparent this is this is sort of my my like current soil for practice is um is really again getting into the the nuance for myself of of what it means to develop a a healthy relationship to desire of like really um wanting and being able to admit that like not being afraid or ashamed to say i want this i want it so much and if i don't get it it's going to absolutely break my heart and also there's a chance that I won't get it, but I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to kind of put myself out there. Um, and for me, it always feels so vulnerable. It feels so vulnerable to say, this is what I want. And I want this so much and I want it with all of my heart. And also I'm willing to accept the fact that it might not happen because it might not with, I could, I could pour my whole heart into it and all of my time and all of my energy and all of my inspiration and it might not happen yep been there and and i I think i think for me um that that for me is is um one of the core differences between self-worth or um sort of desire that's that's based in well in self-worth um as opposed to an entitlement, because entitlement, entitlement always feels like um, I'm owed this, like I'm owed this. Like if I put my heart and my soul and my energy and my attention into this, then the world owes this to me. 
Whereas I think the moment that for me entitlement drops is the moment that I recognize that nobody owes me anything. The world, the world doesn't owe me anything. I'm not owed a certain set of circumstances. I'm not owed a particular outcome. But can I let myself want it with all of my heart and invest my entire self in it anyways, knowing that I'm not owed the outcome that I want? And it feels really, it feels really vulnerable and very scary and very tender. Um, but, you know, I, I think anything else is just kind of a, for me at least, it, it feels like a kind of like a slippery form of um, guarding our hearts a little bit. Like it feels like a, like a kind of a slippery form of detachment, um, of kind of like hedging our bets and being like, well, you know, I really want this, but I'm not going to dream too high because it might not turn out. It's kind of like, like that, it, it feels like, um, you know, second noble truth, attachment aversion. It feels like the, the flip side of attachment. It feels like kind of like an averse relationship to desire. It's like, I'm not actually going to let myself feel this because it might not turn out the way that I want it to. Or the attached version of desire is, I want this so much and it has to turn out the way that I want it to because the world owes me something. Whereas that in-between point is saying, I want it so much and it's going to break my heart if it doesn't happen, but it might not happen. Absolutely. And, and, and I love the way that you explained it like that as well, using the word kind of detachment. And it's a, it's a way of, it's kind of self-preservation because mm. it's like, well, if I'm attaching my self-worth to this external thing and I want it so much that it has to happen like you said then then that means that I'm risking my self-worth so then maybe I just don't I just don't dream as big I just don't try as much and then you know then I won't risk my self-worth you know I'll still I'll still feel okay underneath but actually in reality that means that we don't really protect our self-worth we just kind of feel the sense of that we haven't really tried mm. and mm -hmm. I don't and I don't think that's that's not the same thing um if we're if we're trying to achieve something in our life but we want to protect our self-worth it's actually more like well actually let's start with the self-worth like let's remember that we are like you said it's the phrase basic goodness mm -hmm. and it's like you say you know okay I really really want this but it's still only a bonus mm -hmm. to the fact that I have self-worth anyway and it's just yeah. like, for me, it's so important. It's like flipping it on its head almost and starting with the self-worth, <laughs> realizing that that's not, that's not in the game. Like we're not playing for the self-worth. And I love what you said about using the word detachment because then there's the Buddhist phrase non-attachment. And that's why meditation teachers are so careful about their language when they talk about attachment because it's like detachment as in not really letting yourself feel the thing. <laughs> and then non-attachment, which sounds the same, but is very different. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's so key. Yeah. 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 I think for me, it was so important in the book to really uh, dive into all of the places where we tend to invest our sense of self-worth. If our sense, if we don't feel like our sense of self-worth is really inherent and um, non-negotiable, then we kind of like look for all of these different slippery avenues to, to place our self-worth, which, you know, one of the big ones is in achievement. Like I will, I will finally be lovable and feel a sense of worth in the world if I get X, Y, Z. 
if X, Y, Z. And I know that for me, when, when I'm investing my sense of self-worth in achievement and accomplishment, um, I'm so deeply emotionally invested in the outcome of it that I don't actually have any fun <laughs> because it feels really threatening. Like if this doesn't turn out exactly the way that I need it to turn out, then it means something about me. And that thing that it means is very bad. Totally. Totally. And it's like you said earlier, you use the word playful. Yeah. It can feel so much more playful if we look at what we're trying to do in our lives and who we are and what we're doing and, you know, on a day-to-day basis, projects, ambitions, whatever it may be, it can feel so much more playful because the stakes are not so high because we know that we're okay anyway. Mm-hmm. No matter what. Yeah. And that, that's so revolutionary to me because I would never believe that growing up. Like you said, I asked you when it had started, you were like, oh, you know, forever. Like this has been here forever. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but isn't it wonderful just those moments and they might come far and few between, but just the moments of feeling like, oh no, I'm okay. Like everything in my life could crumble down around me right now and I'll be okay. Yeah, that for me is just, I mean, that's just why I am so obsessed with this whole thing, with the Dharma, with mindfulness, with meditation in all of its forms, because that to me is kind of like the thing that I needed to know and that I wish I had known Mm. and also I think that it's such like we said earlier to bring it right full circle like it's such a universal thing and it's not about blaming you know oh if only my parents had been more like this or if only my school had been more like this or if only I had had more of this or less of that and it's like no it's actually a universal truth and that's why the Buddha talked about it you know (laughs) Mm-hmm. long before any of us were born <laughs> it's not about social media it's not about it's not about the modern world you know these questions have been here for centuries yeah and that to me is it's just actually super reassuring because it means that we're not alone we're not isolated in our belief that we're not good enough yeah and and it's kind of crazy to me like when i first heard this i was like are you serious? Like I could be good enough just as I am. That's, that's, that's crazy. Like you're insane. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, taking it way, way back. One of the, one of the stories that I share in the book, which is one of my favorite stories in the entire Buddhist canon is the story of um, Siddhartha Gautama's awakening, the moment that he became the Buddha. And in that particular story, it's like he faced the demons of aggression like these fierce warlike demons that were just attacking him left and right. And he continued to hold his seat in meditation practice. He was facing the demons of um, attachment and like kind of like perverse desire, um, distraction, where it was essentially like, you don't want to be meditating right now. Like come do this really fun tantalizing thing over here. And he continued to hold his seat. And the very kind of last demon attack, like the most poignant weaponry that could possibly be levied at him was the question, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Do you really think that you are capable of awakening? Do you really think that you deserve to become the Buddha? Like, who do you really think you are? And when I first read that story, I was sitting, I was probably 20 years old. I was sitting on the subway uh, in New York City and just openly started sobbing. 
I mean, like tears, snot, the whole nine, um, because it just struck such a chord of like, whoa, the story is 2,600 years old. And it was in that moment that the Buddha just touched the earth in a gesture of, with the earth as my witness, I have inherent worth. Um, and that was the moment that he was enlightened. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love that as well. In your book, you return to this idea of, of, of reaching the ground, going to the ground. I think the phrase that I picked out was, in case of turbulence, lower your center of gravity. Mm. And that's, that's something that I just find so powerful. I, I know personally from my own experience, when, when things in my life have felt really difficult, instinctively you go to the floor instinctively you sit on the ground or you want to 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 be small and i don't mean small in a negative way i just mean like you say lower your center of gravity ground keep your seat keep your seat yeah Get Get, get down to the ground um you know in preparation for this book i um did 50 different interviews with people again from across the board i just kind of like sent a clarion call out i was like hey i'm getting ready to write this book if you're open to sharing your own personal stories of self-worth i would love to talk to you for 45 minutes um and people from across the world had these 50 or these 45 minute skype calls with me and i always ask the exact same question which is what are the stories or experiences that have shaped your understanding of your own worth and I'm so sad. I I actually lost my laptop. I had recorded all of these conversations. I really wish that I still had my laptop because I would turn that into its own book because it it was magnificent. The stories that would come out of this, I mean, were just such a range. But um, in my research process, I was looking for what it is that connects us and what unites us around our understanding of worth. And something that came up in so many stories is that um, people feel a really sort of unquestioned sense of wholeness and worth and dignity when they're in nature, when they're taking a walk in the woods. It's like, oh yeah, this is perfect. This nature is just, it's perfect and it is intelligent and it's unbroken and it is complete unto itself. And I am a part of that. Um, which, you know, to, t- to touch the earth as a gesture of this is who and what I am um, made a lot of sense. That's so incredible. And it kind of neatly segues into a question that I had for you that's kind of starting to wrap up. Um, not that I want to wrap up because I could talk to you forever, but I'm conscious <laughs> of time. Um, what would your advice be to somebody that maybe has a mindfulness meditation practice or somebody that has an app on their phone that helps them meditate or maybe they go to a meditation center every so often if they want to start to practice this feeling of self-worth and start to yeah like you say start to to hold their own seat in this process of believing that we are good enough Apart from what we mentioned earlier, you know, the curiosity of mind and, 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 and sitting in the, in the middle and being curious of the nuances, is there a practice that you would recommend or is there a certain phrase of contemplation that people might be able to use? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, a phrase that I really love to use in, in meditation practice um, is just 
the, the long version or you can shorten it for yourself is whatever it is that's coming to the forefront in meditation practice, just to say, I see you, thank you for the information, I love you. And back to the breath and the body. And then inevitably the mind wanders and something else comes up. I see you, thank you for the information, I love you. Mm. Back to I the breath and the body. That's a super useful phrase just, just all the time, I think. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know about you and maybe this is just me, but when I meditate, often I do feel quite calm. And, you know, that's after a lot of years of doing it every day. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I do. And I I actually, when I do meditate, you know, some crazy thought comes into my head or a conversation that I remember from years ago or song lyrics, actually song lyrics come into my head a heck of a lot. And I find that when I'm sitting on my cushion, I can be playful. I can, you know, note, note it, notice it and say, gosh, that song lyric, like, isn't, isn't the brain a crazy thing trying to distract me with song lyrics? Ha 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 ha. And then I come back <laughs> to my breath and I'm like, oh, look at me. I'm such a great meditator. Like I noticed that thought and I came back to my breath, like, well done me. But when I'm in my real life and I'm struggling with something that feels super difficult, like working on my business or wondering what I'm going to post on Instagram or having a difficult conversation with my partner, like something that's, that's real in mm. my real life. I find it difficult sometimes, and I think lots of people do, to, like we said earlier, translate it. And I think that phrase of meeting whatever comes up with an acknowledgement and then, yeah, but I love you anyway, though. Yeah. It's kind of super useful whether you're meditating or not, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's like, yeah. I see this. I see this impulse. I'm not going to ignore it. Like, hello. Good to see you. I love you that's not what we're doing right now. Super powerful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Super powerful. I did notice that I missed a question where you talk about social media in your book. Mm -hmm. And I think social media gets a lot of bad rap today because like we said earlier, you know, Buddhism has been around for a lot longer than Instagram. So it's not an Instagram problem, Mm -hmm. but I think like you said in the book, you use the word charnel ground. Mm Mm-hmm you know, it's a, it's a, it's a crucible. It's a site where remembering our sense of self-worth is super difficult and it just, it just intensifies and magnifies everything that we may struggle with. And I would love to know, is it possible to use social media today and still maintain our sense of self-worth? This is a really great question. So first I have to say that um, I recently listened to season two with Liza Kindred Uh, And for anybody who's listening here, please listen to that episode. It's so great. I love the conversation that the two of you had about um, the internet and social media and how um, it's kind of wired to keep us addicted and, and what that does to our brains and what that means for just how much onus we take over our responsibility um, to like be more disciplined around technology. Anyways, that's all a plug for that particular episode. Um, it's Thank so, you. it was so great. It's so great. I was cleaning the house, listening to the two of you. Um, and it felt like you were just like sitting in my living room, having a conversation. Yes. Um, like, oh, I'm doing this with friends. This is great. That means uh, such a huge amount. Yeah. Liza was Liza's so awesome. Like she's just, she just, she's such a powerhouse. She's so outspoken. She knows her stuff. Yeah. She's 
unapologetic about the fact that technology is designed to be addictive and it's not our fault that we're addicted. <laughs> yes. And I just think it's so great because it just gives us permission. It's like, oh, it's not my fault that I feel like shit every time I look at Instagram. Like it's designed to make me addicted. Entirely, entirely. Um, it's such a great episode. And also, I think, plays really neatly into your question of, um, you know, is it, is, it, is it possible to be on Instagram and not feel like shit? <laughs> not feel um, like we're kind of um, comparing ourselves to other people and seeing how we measure up. And um, I mean, the question is, you know, I, I don't know because it is designed to keep us addicted and it is designed to keep us clicking. Um, I don't think that the internet is inherently evil or inherently bad. In fact, I've met some of the best people on social media. I mean, I met you on social media, you know, which I think can be the, the, the beauty. There's always kind of like the upside and the downside. And the downside is, yes, it's a really kind of intense environment for practicing our self-worth because all of the reasons why we might not feel good enough are like right there in our faces. And also, depending on how we use it, um, it can be a place where we um, practice connection and we practice compassion and we, you know, we don't separate our practice from Instagram, that we bring our practice to that environment, recognizing that it's a particularly intense environment to practice in um, and, and kind of like giving ourselves that playful challenge anyways. Of like, can I show up in this charnel ground in this really intense environment um, with my self-worth intact? And like, how does that translate in terms of how I engage with people? And recognizing their worth and recognizing their dignity and recognizing the ways in which we're all kind of trying to perform our best lives as a way of like displaying that we're good enough. And that's so universal. And I know for me, at least, that always cracks my heart open. When I enter Instagram with that in mind, I'm like, oh, look at us. We're all, we're all just doing the thing and we're all just really trying to like be the best version of who we can publicly and you know yeah, I love it's, it it's like really sweet and silly I absolutely <laughs> love that no and that's that's such an incredibly like practical bit of advice because I think so many of us like I said with Liza a lot of us don't have the luxury of not being able to use our phones and also you know like I, like you said it's not all evil <laughs> I don't want to delete my Instagram forever because, you know, like you said, the connections that I've made, like meeting you and Liza and, and Ludro and all the other amazing people that I talk to on there, you know, it is worth it. It is absolutely worth it. And I think I know that I experience social media the best. Like you say, when you go on there and you recognize that everyone is just a human being, like doing their thing, trying their best. And also if you try and, 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 and bring that to your use of it and share the love. Like if you see somebody doing something awesome, you know, like you said, it's the basic goodness. You're fine anyway. You're fine. Like somebody else with a, with a, an amazing holiday or, or doing yoga on the beach doesn't take away from the fact that you're fine. So, so maybe just leave a nice comment. Like awesome. Looks great. Like have a great time, you know, like share, share the love and the appreciation rather yeah. than, 
but it, like you say, it's work. Like it can feel like work. <laughs> oh, it's definitely a practice. It is yeah. because that environment is not meant to amplify our sense of like wholeness, worth, and dignity. Like we really, we have to, we have to like bring that mindset into that environment and, and practice mapping it on to, um, all of our triggers of insufficiency and not good enoughness. Um, so something that you said that I, and I know that we're like trying to wrap it up, but something that you said that just reminded me of, um, you know, a part of this, this practice of self-worth and kind of like the boots on the ground understanding of self-worth um, is how deeply embedded this sense of, um, of, of, of insufficiency is that if you see someone else's win, it must mean that you're losing. Like if you see someone else's great holiday and great vacation, it means that you don't get that great holiday and that great vacation and like your life is not measuring up. Um, and I think this is something that I definitely highlight in the book is, is like one of these areas of the binary that can be so useful to break is the idea that if someone has a piece of the pie, it means that there's no more pieces of the pie left. That there's the haves and the have-nots. And if you see someone have, it means that you are a have-not. And I think that, you know, this opens up a broader conversation about just living in the container of consumerism and capitalism. It's like, it's such a fundamental underpinning that there's only so much to go around. You better get yours before someone else gets it and that we're in constant competition with each other. And I think that when we recognize that that is constantly our, constantly feeding our feeling of not being good enough, and we're actively working with kind of stepping away from that mentality, we can see that there is plenty of pie for all of us, that there's so much to go around. And that if someone else is having a win or a good day or falling in love or like getting exactly what they ordered, it means that they're, they're highlighting the potential for that to happen to us too. Yay. Should we all celebrate in that? Yeah, totally. I kind of love that. It's like, they're showing you that it's possible. Mm-hmm you know and and maybe and maybe for your life actually it's not how you want it to to go or maybe actually when you really look at it do is that what you want maybe not but it's just it's it's like you say it's kind of like taking a less binary approach to it it's not like that's good therefore I am bad or they have that therefore I don't yeah it's so much more about like you said earlier the curiosity the nuances so important to remember that so I do have some kind of like quick fire questions. Great. Oh, I love it. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready. You love it. You love it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I say quick fire and then sometimes people are like, these are not quick fire questions. Like, <laughs> they are a whole other podcast <laughs> of themselves. But mm-hmm. I just like to sum up, I think, what would you say if you had to pick one thing, one way that learning meditation helps with self-worth, what would it be? Mm. single phrase would be holding our seat um that meditation really is uh the the consistently practiced experience of being in our bodies with our minds and our emotions and making space for whatever arises and allowing that to be okay and for me there's there's of course i'm biased but there's no more powerful way that I found to um, 
come to befriend myself and just appreciate myself warts and all than the consistent act of sitting down with myself and spending time in my own company and creating space for whatever's happening and saying, that's okay. I'm here anyways. I'm here. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think like you said, it's so key that you finish that with, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, I'm just going through my questions and actually that, that answer was so great that you actually answered pretty much all of it in that one question, which is, <laughs> um, I guess, I guess what, what would you say to somebody who's skeptical about meditation or someone that says, yeah, that all sounds great, but you know, I'm not the kind of person that meditates. Yeah, I love skepticism. I say, yay, you should be skeptical. You should absolutely be skeptical because anybody who comes to you and says, this is what meditation is going to do for you is trying to sell you something. You have to sit down on the cushion and experience it for yourself and be skeptical and bring all of your skepticism to the meditation cushion. Um, but, but I would really encourage people to bring their skepticism, but have the experience anyways, and just notice what happens. Just notice what happens. Um, in fact, I'm skeptical of people who kind of buy into it wholesale without ever having experienced it before, because it's the kind of thing where like you and I can talk for, I can already tell like we could talk for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end of meditation, all of its benefits and everything that we've received and gained and learned and how amazing it is and the ways that it has completely changed the nooks and crannies of our lives. But until you sit down on the cushion and you have the direct experience of meditation practice, it's just words. Totally. Yeah, totally. And I think also it's important to say that the, the Buddha said that as well. Like he said, don't take anything that I say as, as read unless you experience it for yourself. Yeah. And I think that it's kind of like anybody that's skeptical, it's like, yeah, cool. Come, come to the cushion with your skepticism. Awesome. Mm -hmm. That's, that's still fine. Like you said, you know, we're not trying to change ourselves with meditation. We're trying to actually become more of who we are. Yeah. So if you're skeptical and you think it's not for you, cool. It's, still try. <laughs> <laughs> always want to say to people I'm like yeah cool like awesome like have you tried it though are you gonna try it like yeah. I would I would recommend trying it <laughs> see how <Yeah>. you go <laughs> you won't be you won't be worse for the wear after 20 minutes after 20 minutes you might be like a little bit more bored and maybe kind of sleepy but you won't be worse off <laughs> for having tried it <sighs> totally and this is and this is a huge question I've left the biggest question for last well yes. almost last what kind of tea and what kind of cake would you have with your demons? Oh, Hannah, this is such a great question. Um, what kind of tea and what kind of cake? You know, I would probably have um, some Puera tea, which I love. I think it's fermented. I think it's fermented tea, um, but it, it tastes just like, it's like dirt. I don't even know what that is. What is that tea? <laughs> it's called Puera. Um, P-U-E-R-E-H, I want to say. There's an apostrophe in there somewhere. Um, yeah, I'll look it up. I think it's, I think it's fermented and it just tastes like dirt. It tastes like earth. And I don't know why that sounds disgusting, but it's really delicious. So definitely purity, um, and cake, carrot cake with cream cheese frosting. Oh. 
Would yes. it have walnuts on it as well? Ooh, yes, definitely yeah. walnuts. Okay, yeah. that's really cool. I love that. I love that you describe that the tea that you like is is a taste of earth. Like going back to the earth that the Buddha touched. It's like all completely on brand. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You know, I feel like mine would have to be like green tea or peppermint tea. You know, like maybe matcha, but matcha is a bit too aggressive. Mm. I was thinking about this because I'm more of a coffee girl, you understand. But mm-hmm. I was thinking, well, you know, tea with cake goes very well. And then cake, oh, this was a difficult one because you saw on my Instagram when I was going on about this, I was like, lemon drizzle cake is a good one. Yes. But potentially also chocolate fudge cake. Oh, and in, in the UK, you know, you can't beat a really good Victoria sandwich cake either. Ooh, I don't think I've ever had a Victorian sandwich cake. Okay, you definitely, like? definitely should. So it's like it's like a vanilla layer cake. So uh-huh. it has like two layers of vanilla sponge cake. And then in the middle, it usually has jam, strawberry jam. And then sometimes, depending on how purist you are, you can also put cream in it or butter, buttercream. Mm. And then on top, it can have icing sugar or again depending on how purist you are you can put icing on it or more cream or whatever it's just creamy strawberry jam goodness oh that sounds incredible yeah i think i would i would give that to my demons because they would definitely shut up when they were eating that (laughs) (laughs) "Mm -hmm. this will do it this will do it yeah i love that so the absolute last question is <laughs> where can people find you if they want to find out more about you, your classes, your book? Of course, I'm going to post links to all of this stuff in the show notes, but what is the best way to find you online and get in touch if they want to? Mm, thank you. It's a really great question. Um, so you can find me on my website, which is just Adriana Limbach dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on Instagram, Adriana Limbach. Um, I'm not really on Facebook that often. So those are, those are really the two places, Instagram and, and also my website. Um, and I just want to say for anybody who's listening, I love hearing from all of you. If you ever want to shoot me an email, if you want to reach out to me, if you have questions, if you want to talk to me about my book, like I think this is part of the beauty of what the internet can be is that it really highlights the truth of our interdependence that we're all in this together and um you know there's someone listening to this interview right now at this moment in their living room and we're having a we're having a collective conversation so i love when that actually comes back to me through my computer screen um don't hesitate to reach out i love to hear from everybody Yay. I love that. Yeah. Same. Same. It's like you said, the internet's not completely evil. It also brings people together that would never otherwise have met or never otherwise have spoken. So that's awesome. Well, I will post uh, all the links to that in the show notes so that people can find out more and come say hi. That would be, that would be great. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you so much for- Thank you so much. Like, I feel like, you know, I really need to go and have tea and cake with you at some point and have a even longer conversation. <laughs> <laughs> the next time you're in New York, please, 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 please. I would love that. <laughs> oh my gosh. If that isn't an incentive for me to book a flight immediately, like that would, that sounds amazing. I will definitely. Do that. Thank you so much for being here. It's been so great to chat about such an incredibly universal topic, something that I have struggled with my whole life, uh, self-worth. Thank you 
for writing your book. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for being so honest about it. And I hope that people will discover your book and, and really just feel united in that universality and, and realize that we're all on this train together, this self train, and it's all, it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Thank you so much, Adriana. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You are a rock star. I would love to hear what you thought about this episode. Come and join the conversation over at Breathe Like a Badass on Instagram. Let me know that you've left a review for the podcast. Let me know that you've listened. Let me know your big takeaways or anything that really stood out to you or made sense. I appreciate every single one of you and it is amazing that you've taken precious time out of your day to listen to this. So I would just absolutely love to see you there and just say thanks to you over DM or over email. Thank you so, so much. Another way for me to say thank you is through my free quiz, which asks you the question, what's really keeping you stuck and how can you break free? If you head on over to breathelikeabadass.com forward slash quiz, that will give you access to your personalized results. And it will also allow me to send you your free three-day course on exactly how to take super small but super effective steps towards the calm clarity self-belief and let's be honest courage that you need to build a fulfilled life that truly feels good that's what i'm here for that's my mission that's why i do what i do and that is what this podcast is here for so thank you so much for listening it's been an absolute pleasure and i cannot wait to see you back here next week